and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. And when, when he had said these things, as they were looking on, he was lifted up and a cloud took him out of their sight. Acts 1, 8 and 9. In the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Please be seated. Well, good evening. I am so happy to be here with you all this evening to celebrate the feast of the ascension of our Lord Jesus Christ. We may be few in number tonight, but that will not deter us from observing one of the seven principal feasts on the church calendar. So with that in mind, let us turn our attention to the word of God. Today, the church celebrates the feast of the ascension of our Lord Jesus Christ into heaven. According to the record, this happened 40 days after his resurrection outside of Jerusalem at the Mount of Olives. The Feast of the Ascension always falls on a Thursday because the 40th day after Easter Sunday is always a Thursday. It has its roots in early Judaism and accounts of the ascension of Elijah and Enoch. From a doctrinal perspective, it implies Christ's humanity being taken into heaven and is popularly popularly depicted in Christendom through iconography. In church history, the celebration of the Ascension dates as far back as the late 4th century. And it points us to the next major feast day on the church calendar, Pentecost, which we'll celebrate in 10 days. Now I have to be honest with you. The Ascension is one of those events that has been a bit baffling or even confusing for me. I might even go so far as to say that it's been underwhelming for me. Don't get me wrong. I'm happy and glad that Jesus ascended into heaven. I've always believed in its historicity and necessity. But I find myself often asking how it really matters to me as I live out my Christian life in the 21st century. What does it do for me? Do I really need to get excited or have some deeper understanding about it rather than merely an intellectual belief in the reality of the event itself? Isn't it enough that I confess my belief in it when we say the Nicene Creed? And perhaps some of these questions resonate with you all this evening. As I've shared my own questions about the, ascensions with, about the ascension with you, I want to tell you that I do believe we should take a closer look at the ascension of Jesus and gain a deeper understanding of its significance. If we are to grow in the knowledge and love of God and of his Son, then there is no aspect of the life and person of Jesus that should exceed our desire and, gra- desire and grasp. To be conformed to the image of Jesus requires such a degree of intimacy and knowledge, it should not only capture a moment of our attention on a single Thursday, 40 days after Easter, but it should propel us to fix our gaze on the life of the one who will come again to take us to be with him. So what do we do with the ascension of Jesus? How do we unpack the details of two brief accounts and understand its significance and implications? Well, first we go to scripture. Luke tells us ever so briefly in his gospel that Jesus promised to send the Holy Spirit to his disciples as they waited in Jerusalem. He then began to bless them. And as that was taking place, he parted from them and was carried up into heaven. The disciples then worshiped Jesus, returned from Bethany to Jerusalem, and continued their habit of worshiping God at the temple. And that's it for the gospel account. Luke gives a rather direct and brief narrative of the event without 
really any commentary on it. However, his account in Acts sheds much more light on the event, and that is where I want to focus tonight. In Acts 1, Luke gives us a summary of what he had previously written in his gospel and then focuses on Jesus giving proofs of his resurrection to the disciples over the 40-day period. We also read about the promise of the sending of the Holy Spirit as they wait in Jerusalem. The disciples were on another track, as was usually the case. Jesus was preparing them for the tasks ahead in the kingdom of God, and they were wondering about the restoration of the kingdom of Israel. Now, it's easy to beat up on the ever dull and slow to hear disciples. We have information they didn't have. As much as I like to see myself in a better light than they are, I'm quite certain that I would have been asking the exact same question if I were among them. It would have been a natural question for a first century Jew to ask the Messiah. The Messiah was supposed to restore the kingdom. The Messiah was supposed to put everything to rights and remove the unclean occupiers lording over Israel. All good God-fearing Jews in Jesus' day were ready to see Rome defeated and sent home with their idols in tow. But Jesus had to rebuke their misdirected thinking. It was not their business to know the times and seasons that God had fixed by his authority. That's not what they were to be about. Jesus had other things in mind for them. Their task was not to restore the kingdom of Israel, but to advance the kingdom of God. This would not happen by political means, but by divine means. They would receive the power of the Holy Spirit, not to rule or reign over the land once again, but to be witnesses of the risen and ruling Jesus in their local synagogues and surrounding localities, and as far as they could get on Roman roads, the end of the earth. And as Jesus is telling them all of this, he's taken up to heaven by a cloud to sit at the right hand of God. Great, now what? Again, I would have been right there with them, starting staring into the sky, wondering what in the world is going on. The bemused looks on their faces must have been a sight to behold for the two angels offering a second rebuke to the disciples. They must have been wondering how they missed all the signs that they saw and arrived at the wrong conclusion. So what are we to make of this account? What is so significant about Jesus ascending to the right hand of the Father? How do we take the lesson and apply it to our lives today? Well, I'm borrowing from the work of New Testament scholar Steve Walton, and he gives seven significant implications about the ascension. I'll share just a few. The first implication we should consider is that the ascension imply, implies that Jesus now reigns alongside God in heaven and it is appropriate to call him Lord and Messiah. Now, I know that this could come off almost like uh, too obvious to mention, but we need the reminder. Jesus did not ascend to heaven so that he could just sit back and call it a day, as it were. Jesus ascended into heaven to take his rightful place to reign and rule over the entire universe. This is what it means when we call him Lord. We are not just ascribing to him a status that puts him just above any power and authority here on earth. By calling him Lord, we are recognizing his supreme authority, his exalted place, his dominion and power that sustains all things and rules all things. 
Walton's point here is in line with our recently revised catechism, which states, Jesus was taken up out of human sight and returned in his humanity to the glory he had shared with the Father before his incarnation. There he intercedes for and receives into heavenly life all who come to him in faith. Though absent in body, Jesus is always present with us by his spirit and hears us when we pray. The second implication that the ascension foresh- is that the ascension foreshadows Jesus' return to earth from heaven. We see this in the fact that he was taken up in a cloud. Now the cloud serves as a sign of the, of the divine presence in God's glory. Along with his favorite title for himself, Son of Man, it, is, it links him to the prophecy given in Daniel seven thirteen through 14, which states, And behold, with the clouds of heaven, there came, like, there came one like the Son of Man, and he came to the Ancient of Days and was presented before him. And to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion, which shall not pass away, and his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. And as Paul wrote to the church at Thessalonica about Jesus' return, he says, Then we who are alive, who are left, will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. Now, regardless of one's opinion on the rapture, one thing is certain. When we read about the return of Jesus and the church going to meet him, it takes place in the clouds. Jesus also alludes to this in Mark 14 at his trial before the Sanhedrin as he answers their questions about his Messiahship when he states, I am, and you will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power and coming with the clouds of heaven. Connecting these dots helps us understand the angel's words regarding Jesus returning the same way that he was taken up. The third implication that I want to share with you is that because of Jesus' ascended status, the Holy Spirit is given to believers from him. The Spirit comes from heaven at Jesus' behest. Jesus exercises his rule and reign by the Spirit, and believers are empowered by the Spirit to carry out Christ's mission. Now, I'm not sure if I can overstate this point. We can do very little, perhaps even nothing, without the divine enabling and empowering of the Holy Spirit. Often, our unaided efforts are described as taking place in the flesh. We have the best of intentions. We come up with what we think are great ideas. But if the Spirit of God is not in it, it is doomed to failure or very little success. Personally, I struggle in this area. I tend to give myself too much credit. I like to think that my self-reliance is more of a positive attribute than it really is. Our culture teaches us that. We raise our children to be self-reliant. Single parents have to learn a high degree of self-reliance. The mantra of, I'll just do it myself, all too often seeps in and becomes part of our DNA. But God's way is entirely different. We cannot do it on our own. On our own, we will fall short. If we are to complete the task and mission Christ has given us, then the words of the Lord found in Zechariah 4.6 should daily be on our lips. Not by might, nor by power, but by my spirit, says the Lord. I believe there is a direct correlation to our usefulness and success for God 
and ultimate success in this world and our reliance on the empowering of his spirit. The final implication that I want to share is just as important as the previous three. And it's that Jesus' present position in heaven means that believers may approach God with confidence through him. He is the source of salvation. Seated at his right hand, Jesus has the ear of the Father. He is praying for us. Our needs, our brokenness, our pain, our desires, our hurt, our struggles, they're all brought to the Father by the Son. Just as we quickly forget that the Holy Spirit is our source of power to accomplish God's will here on earth, we tend to also quickly forget that Jesus is praying for us. We know the comfort we receive and the love we sense when someone tells us that they are praying for us. It builds us up. It encourages us. It brightens our day. How much more are we edified, encouraged, and comforted when we remember and rely on Jesus' prayers for us. It is his ascension to God's right hand that makes this possible. If we believe that the prayer of a righteous man has power in its effects, then let us look to Jesus Christ, the righteous one, and ask him to pray to the Father for us. So where does it leave us this evening? I've talked quite a bit, but most likely said very little. However, our God is a God of the very little. He will take a few words given to him and multiply them into a great blessing. And may that be the case this evening. I want to leave you with just a few things to consider in applying these points to our lives. The first thing we should do is recognize that Jesus' ascension connected to his resurrection is how he is fully glorified by God. We should see his resurrection and his ascension not as completely separate events, but as one whole event with two distinct moments. His resurrection is the defeat of death and hell. His ascension is his glorification as the son of man. The second thing we should do is take comfort and live into Jesus' prayers for us. As a priest, I am always being asked to pray for someone or something. And I get that. It's my job. When no one else wants to pray or is able to pray, I am called to pray. When someone is sick, I am called to pray. When death makes its presence felt in this world, I am called to pray. By God's spirit and grace, I am a conduit of his grace, love, and comfort to others. And I truly love to pray for other people. But I also love it when others pray for me. Loved ones, nothing can be more comforting to me and to you than to know that Jesus is praying for me and for you. Perhaps that's why St. Peter tells us to cast all your anxiety on him because he cares for you. And finally, we should not lose our focus on the task given to us. Once more, we can quickly find ourselves with the disciples in this area. Oftentimes, we are looking to bring about the wrong kingdom by the wrong means. In this hyper-politicized and polarized culture, we tend to do more harm than good when we lose our focus. We have been given the mission to be faithful witnesses to Christ. 
We must be asking the Lord daily how we do this in a manner worthy of his name. There are good, wise, and helpful ways to complete our mission. And there are bad, foolish, and harmful ways to attempt this. And we need to be discerning. I want to live in a country that honors God and cares for the least among us. I want to live in a country that defends those that cannot defend themselves. I want to live in a country that cares for the widow and orphan, born and unborn, the free person and the prisoner, the outcast, the homeless, and the marginalized. However, I don't expect legislation to do all of it. I expect the church to do it. I expect us to roll up our sleeves, get our hands dirty, and break a sweat living out the reality of the imminence of the kingdom of God while inviting others into it. Our best witness for Christ is not the laws we write and pass, but the neighbors we love. Our best witness for Christ is not how many candidates for our political party we help get elected, but the souls we care for and bring to our Lord. We will not legislate unbelievers into God's kingdom. We will not argue unbelievers into God's kingdom. And we will not shame unbelievers into God's kingdom. We will love unbelievers into God's kingdom. The world will know we are Christ's disciples by how we love one another. So let us keep our focus on being faithful witnesses as we've been called to be. Loved ones, take comfort in the fact that Jesus is praying for you and all the saints are praying for you. Take comfort in the fact that in a world that seems to get so out of control and hostile to God, Jesus is ruling and reigning over it all. COVID did not knock Jesus off of his throne. Take comfort in the fact that the Holy Spirit has been sent to empower you, to strengthen you, to enable you, to make you holy. Do not come to God and see only a risen son that has defeated hell and Satan, but see a risen and ascended son that has defeated evil and has welcomed you into his kingdom to rule and reign with him. In the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, amen.